This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Hague. And a cupboard full of gold discs just thrown in there, which only really used for cutting up weed. He was a bit of a homebody. He always took his turn to do the vacuum cleaning and make the bed. Jimi Hendrix was born in Seattle in 1942 and died in London in 1970, almost exactly 50 years ago to the day as we record this. Philip Norman is, for my money, our finest rock biographer, and we join him in his garden in Hampstead to talk about Wild Thing, the short spellbinding life of Jimi Hendrix. Philip, thank you for joining us on Book Podcast. My pleasure. So, why Hendrix? Well, um, this anniversary, of course, a couple of years ago, I suddenly realised it would be in this year. Um, and I aim really for what I call the tiny top echelon of performers, people whose names just get a reaction anywhere in the world, any nationality, any language. And he seemed to me to be the last one, really. What, that you hadn't done? Yeah. Um, I, I was a you little haven't bit done the Nolan sisters yet. That's true, or Bebop Deluxe, <laughs> the early years. Um, but it... I kept on sort of resisting the idea, um, and it, the book kind of put itself together against my wishes. Eventually, the, the man who used to deliver our milk in our other house suddenly let drop one day that he, in another life, had been a painter and decorator. He and his brother had done up a flat for Jimmy near Marble Arch, and he, he just told me all about the interior of this flat, and how Jimmy's um, bathroom floor was covered with fan mail he didn't read, and a cupboard full of gold discs just thrown in there which only really used for cutting up weed. He didn't set any store by them, really. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to have to do this. And it was all based, really, on the, the track, um, because Jimmy's great, as well as doing wonderful original stuff, of course, he did the most magnificent cover versions. He's, he's unusual, known. isn't he, in yeah. the greats? Because yes. cover versions are just rites of passage. Being famous for, for cover the versions. For the Beatles. His cover version of Dylan's All Along the Watchtower, to me, is still the most exciting piece of rock music ever. I agree. Um, so then it, I realised I was being propelled into this project. Um, and, of course, the fact that he was so very young, and it, it is such a tragedy, not only uh, that a, such a virtuoso musician, but such a showman, and such a very sweet and nice person that he was. You know, And it's not, not always you can really like or love the subject of a biography. You have to have respect for them, but you, usually there is some trait that you have to excuse. And in Jimmy's case, he was just a sweet, lovely person. It does seem that everybody who, who came across him found him really nice and, and sweet-natured. Yes, and rather unconfident as well. This man who would go on stage and commit literal sort of sexual abuse on his guitar. I mean, pushing the boundaries of showmanship the way that Mick Jagger, Jim Morrison, even Jim Morrison exposing himself, didn't quite go as far as Jimi Hendrix. Yet off stage, he was very shy, very polite, and not very confident. That's the most extraordinary thing. He didn't think, for instance, that he had a good singing voice. Well, his voice is actually one of the most intriguing things because this wild guitar is counterpointed by this rather mellow, calm voice, singing voice, which is a perfect combination. Um, but he never thought he was a good singer. He was an absolutely incendiary guitarist. Uh, did he really, when he arrived in London, did he really frighten every guitarist in town? He didn't frighten them. He, he dazzled them, and he made them just surrender. They all said, Clapton, Jeff Beck, anybody you like, any of those guitar superheroes of the 60s, when they heard Jimmy, they just gave up. They said, we can't compete with this. Instead of 
smouldering jealousy. They adored him. They adulated him. He was just, I mean, he really was like, you know, Clapton was said to be God, but couldn't ever really seem like a God. Um, but Jimmy was a kind of deity to these people. We've said that he died at 27, and his his effective career was all of about four years, because he, he, it started really when he arrived in London. How did that happen? He was born in Seattle. He, he, he played what they call the Chitlin Circuit. What's the Chitlin Circuit? Remind us. Well, it's a very demeaning term for uh, essentially segregated venues. The racism, I mean, we think about racism a lot at the moment, but the racism in the early 60s in the States was appalling. And even the you know, the most celebrated black, not only musicians, but, um, you know, any kind of star in the firmament who happened to be African-American was segregated and had to play in a special place. Um, and he could never break out of that. He 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 was also a backup guitarist for other people. Yeah, he played for uh, lots of... Hey, Little Richard and... Little Richard and, and, and most of them sort of got annoyed because he simply stole their sort of limelight um, because he al always was such an individual. What did Little Richard say? Oh, I am the only one allowed to be pretty. <laughs> <laughs> um, although Little Richard was better to him, actually, than, than, than the mythology says. But he could never really make a name for himself in those conditions in America. And by chance... He was discovered by the girlfriend of the Rolling Stone, Keith Richards, known in those days as Keith Richard, and uh, brought, um, actually she, her name was Linda Keith, rather wonderful woman actually, who never had any credit for any of this. She just told um, Chaz Chandler, of the, uh, the bass player with the animals, about this amazing young man she'd seen playing in in a, in a divey sort of club in New York with a rather bad kind of house soul band. And Chandler then signed him up and brought him to London. And as soon as he set foot in London, he, had, he hadn't got a work permit. So he had to play in clubs as if he was just doing it, sitting in with a house band. And that's why all the Beatles and the Stones and uh, uh, the Who and everyone saw him. And he was immediately, of course, recognised for the virtuoso that he was. His, um, his management experience is, is really quite interesting. Now, Chas Chandler, as you say, had been the, the bassist for uh, The Animals, the, the, the band... Um, House of the Rising Sun, we all remember. The Animals was more or less moribund at this point, wasn't he? Chandler was looking to move into uh, into management anyway. He was. I mean, <clears throat> what all of those bands needed to withstand the incredible pressure of being in a really success, not just the Beatles and the Stones, but, you know, others like the Animals, what they needed was to be to have camaraderie. They needed to get on. They needed to have this unity against the rest of the world, you know. That was their one sort of asset that they had. And Eric Burden of the Animals later said that the animals were, dis were constructed like a fragmentation grenade. You know, they, they had no camaraderie and they had a manager who, right from the start, was ripping them off in the most dreadful manner. Chandler wanted to get out of the animals uh, and he did by becoming a manager and signing up Jimmy as his first uh, protégé. But then he took him immediately back to the manager who'd been running the animals and ripping them off. And he years. was one of the world's great uh, crooked managers. If there's a rogues gallery of, of uh, thieving kleptomaniac managers, Mike Jeffrey is one of them. It was, yes, but he wasn't like um, a lot of them, uh, also kind of um, narcissists, and they want just as much limelight as the band. <clears throat> but Mike Jeffrey was always a shadowy figure. 
and uh, he was rarely photographed. He was always wearing dark glasses, and um, he'd been in, he'd had a, a weird background in the Secret Service, and he'd killed people, you know, in uh, uh, legal, you know, with the army, with the SAS, and um, so Jeffrey took on Jimmy. Chandler looked after the, the recording and you know on the road, but Jeffrey was the one who did the deals and stole all his money. Yes, well, actually, it went into this offshore account where it was supposed to be waiting. He'd done the same with the animals before, <laughs> but Chandler thought that every manager was a crook, and better a crook you know than a crook you don't know. You've said that the racism in America uh, was was such that uh, Jimmy could never um, could never really uh, make his mark there. And and you have a, a lovely point that, that the racism in Britain was uh, quite quite intense, but it lacked malice. It wasn't designed to kill black it w- people. It was so jo- it was jo- no less offensive. I mean, he he acquired these sort of nicknames in the music press, like the Wild Man from Borneo. Um, but it was kind of it wasn't really no, without malice behind it. And Jimmy, of course, compared to what he'd known in the States, it was very mild. And Jimmy kind of thought that it made him sound interesting. He didn't mind, really. He would even watch the, the horrible black-and-white minstrel show that used to be on television with sort of white performers, you know, blacked up, and sort of think, oh, it's, you know, it's just funny, you know, because it was, wasn't so bad as he was used to. So Chas Chandler puts Jimmy with a couple of white musicians, uh, Noel Redding and, and Mitch Mitchell, who are both white, uh, to form the Jimi Hendrix experience. How important is it that that Jimi Hendrix was fronting, was a black man fronting uh, a, a band with, with uh, white side men? It was important, uh, well, it was really important when they went back and toured America, which they did uh, in a, a dreadful tour that lasted almost a full year in America at the time of the worst race riots and the worst official reprisals against uh, peaceful demonstrators against the Vietnam War. Um, Going back with a, with a two white sidemen then was an extraordinary thing to have done. I mean, like, you know, stands with anything in the civil rights movement's history. It's interesting that neither of them was a, a virtuoso. No, no, it was just enough to sort of keep it going, but n- not to detract attention at all from Jimmy. That was the c- criterion in the UK. Um, and also because, you know, there had been... Uh, there had been black um, singers in white bands before that. There were all, all mixed. There had been mixed race bands in the UK before that. Emil Ford and the Checkmates, somebody like that. Um, but in in America, it was an extraordinary thing to have done. And also, they were supposed they were they were loud. In fact, um, you know, <laughs> Mitch Mitchell was a more of a jazz drummer, really. Noel Redding couldn't play the bass guitar. Jimmy had to teach him to play the bass because you had to have a bass guitar. Because Noel Redding had been a guitarist before. He'd been a guitarist, yeah. but you see, Jimmy could have gone on stage and done it all. Jimmy could play like and a, did sometimes. like a whole band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they had to be. They had actually the the example of a. It was called a power trio. Uh, they already had the example of Cream, Eric Clapton. They were all white, of course. But also, the, what absolutely motivated Jeffrey, as indeed every other manager at that time was the belief that this music is not going to last. That this is just a, a sort of fad for a few months and get all you can before it just goes away. Even the Beatles, even the Beatles, late in their career, were told this is not going to last. You better, Lennon McCartney, you better start writing songs for other people. You'll have to be songwriters you won't, because people will get tired of the beat. Of course, that was ridiculous. You know. um, but that was why this um, trio with Jimmy uh, fronting them were worked to this 
this awful sort they of... They really were yeah, pushed, weren't yes, they? All over the country. I mean, to the back of beyond, the edge of Ilkley Moor, the Trout Beck Hotel one Sunday night, you know, Jimi Hendrix experience came along. And when he, after Jimi's great breakthrough in America, the first one with the Monterey Festival in 1967, uh, suddenly everyone was talking about him. Mike Jeffrey didn't know what, he had to quickly set up a tour because Jimmy had really only gone to play at Monterey. And of course, that was why Jimmy was booked onto a tour headlined by the Monkees. <laughs> Which was incredible, yes. considering the Monkees were not musicians. In fact, didn't they have a, a, a band playing behind a curtain? They and did. they mined to it. The, the, the weird thing about it was that two of them actually were serious musicians, but the, the propaganda had to be that they weren't. So they had a band playing behind the scenes, but actually met Nesmith, they were quite good musicians and they were very respectful to Jimmy on that tour. But people were all, the audience were 12 year old girls, school girls, you know, calling for David Jones. It was the only time Jimmy couldn't get an audience in the palm of his hand. And now, of course, uh, you, you said that it, uh, they were squeezing every dollar out of it because they were sure it was going to go uh, fall over next month. And uh, Jimmy Hendrix, I think you could count him, he's the fifth uh, biggest earner of the dead rock megastars. That's true. Um, when he died, uh, uh, he died intestate, um, he was officially dem domiciled in New York State. And under the law, uh, his, his estate went to his next of kin, which was his father. His father, Al Hendricks, had never, ever comprehended his talent, never encouraged him, had discouraged him, in fact, um, was a, you know, a, a man without any imagination. He had a terrible childhood. Uh, yes, a dreadful childhood, virtually, you know, very nearly living on the streets in Seattle, um, kind of looked after by kind women in the neighborhood, he and his younger brother, Leon. Um, and he died with an estate that was only valued about $40,000 or something. Now, a lot of it had been siphoned away by Mike Jeffrey. And Mike Jeffrey, after Jimmy's death, became invisible for about a week, where he was just making sure he had all, it all salted away and no one could touch it. Um, but over the years after that, because Jimmy's, um, eventually the estate went to Jimmy's adoptive sister, uh, Janie, and she, with the help of other people, have built it up to an enormous corporation called Experience Hendrix. Now, yes, and it, and uh, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions. Yeah, of dollars. absolutely. And I mean, there there are it's, there's the Lennon, there's the McCart, there's the Harrison, Harrison, uh, Lennon, and Marley. Um, that's and Presley, I suppose. And Presley, yeah. yeah. And and after that, uh, Jimi Hendrix. Mm. Um, we any book about. Jimi Hendrix has to deal with his death, and you you do the most brilliant forensic job um, of teasing through um, all, all the all the information, all the accounts, all the reports, most of which seems to be consisting of lies. Everybody involved at the time seems to have lied. Can we start off? Give us an idea. How did he die? He was twenty-seven. He's in <laughs> Notting Hill, a strange place to die. What happened to him? He had just done, um, he'd done the Isle of Wight Festival, the big, that was the last of the great pop festivals on the Isle of Wight. There were three in a row, and this was the, the biggest one of the lot. Um, he'd then gone on a European tour where he was exhausted and uh, taking more drugs than he had before and sometimes incapable of playing, but mostly physically exhausted. He came back to London um, and he fell rather into the clutches of an obsessive female fan from 
what was then West Germany, now Germany, Monica Dannemann, a former ice skating champion. And he was with Monica Dannemann on that night. Now, he was actually officially registered at the Cumberland Hotel, a large, efficient, comfortable hotel at Marble Arch. But he was with Monica, who afterwards claimed that they were engaged and were going to get married. Even though she'd had precisely two one-night stands with him before this uh, brief spell in London. Yes, and um, but she was quite clever. She was a bit older than the, 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 what used to be called a groupie, but I suppose you'd call an obsessive fan. In fact, uh, Jimmy's longest sort of lived um, uh, female partner, Kathy Etchingham, really now classes her as a bit of a stalker, in fact. And when Jimmy came back, Jimmy had no kind of... He, was, he couldn't do anything for himself, basically. And, and Monica hired a car. That's what she did. So he was always have to be driven by her. A lot of people thought she was his chauffeur. Um, but they were together in this basement in Notting Hill, the basement of a small hotel, which was like a bed-sitter down downstairs. And uh, Jimmy took some sleeping... asked for some sleeping tablets uh, from Monica. And she gave him... Uh, a brand called Vesprax that were, if you can believe anything so stupid, every tablet was a double dose. And so he took about eight or nine of these. Now, we don't know why he took so many, whether, whether it was him who decided to or whether Monica was trying to feed them to him. It's or? hard to say because her account of uh, his last hours changed uh, something like 14 times afterwards. But in general, I mean, in a muddle, he might have taken sort of six or seven of these things. But of course, they, each one had a double dose. Um, but what was awful was that this happened in the very early hours of the morning. And she, in a panic, called Eric Burden, who he'd stayed friendly with of the animals, and, and other people went there as well. And it seems like several hours passed before an ambulance was called. The ambulance wasn't called till after 11 a.m. in that, that, that morning. And this was an Indian summer like we're having now a bit. And uh, dawn would have broken very, very early, four o'clock, perhaps even a little earlier. And it seems like Jimmy was there lying on a bed in total distress while people were getting rid of drugs and trying to you know, cover their own backsides. Um, and that is what the, the awful thing is that it was an avoidable accident. You know, he might have been resuscitated. It's interesting, though, that he'd had brushes with death beforehand, hadn't he? He'd, you know, he was kidnapped by the mafia one time and uh, he'd, he'd uh, taken too many drugs in other circumstances. He'd, he'd, he'd crash a car at one time. Uh, it, do you not think that he was on course? self-destruction because all those drugs that he took I mean you, you know you you mentioned him taking these to, to get to sleep but that was a routine for him wasn't it well you know he he's now the sort of president for eternity of what is known as the 27 club which is you know the other rock performers at that who didn't make it to 30 died at 27 Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones Janis Joplin Jim Morrison later Amy Winehouse Kurt Cobain but Jimmy really wasn't one he wasn't one of these figures sort of absolutely wallowing in excess he took he smoked pot and he took some cocaine and he took lsd but he wasn't completely saturated in drugs he wasn't sort of saturated in booze um there was a quite a domestic side to jimmy he liked he was a bit of a homebody when he lived with kathy etchingham you know he was very, he always took his turn to do the vacuum cleaning and make the bed and that sort of thing. And he wasn't really like a sort of one of these wild, you know, excessive um, creatures of excess, uh, like the other 27 club members. 
Oh, you say something wonderful about the 27 Club. You say after Jimmy, um, it was uh, the club was acquiring members like there was no tomorrow, which for them there wasn't. <laughs> oh, that was a bit of a cheap shot. <laughs> oh, no, it made me laugh. <laughs> yeah. The other funny thing about it, you know, the, there were many theories. Um, and the, the main theory was that it might have been the Mafia who wanted to take him over. Uh, or it might have been Jeffrey, the manager, whose management he was actually on course to leave. Or it might have been the American government, which was the, then the Nixon government, utterly paranoid, so paranoid about Jimmy that he was on a list of people who, in any national emergency, would have been rounded up and held in custody as a danger to society. They never forgave him for playing the, sp the Star Spangled Banner, did That's they? true, but I mean, other things as well. And because he had started to align himself a bit towards the end of his life with black radical movement like the Black Panthers. But again, all of those theories do hold a bit of credence because, as you say, he was kidnapped by the Mafia. But he was released, actually, when Jeffrey, who had connections with the Mafia, his manager, appealed to higher up mafiosi in the organization. <laughs> so um, because his, his record company originally in America were, were, was a reprise label, which had been created by Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> And it still apparently had a bit of a helpline to the mob. Um, and uh, so that all of these theories do hold a bit of sort of believability. But it does seem, and I really looked into all of them very carefully, that um, it was this tragic avoidable accident. It does, it's interesting though that everybody is lying about it. And of course the only person left who has a sort of eyewitness um, uh, angle on it is Eric Burden. He's still alive. He could, but he's he's kept his mouth shut mostly. Well, he did in a, a phone conversation with Kathy Etchingham later. Uh, he did say he was in that little bedsit, and Jimmy was on the bed, um, which he thought <laughs> thought he'd, he was too late to save Jimmy. But he Eric Burden said he couldn't look at him. It was too upsetting to look at him. Um, so he has sort of admitted being there. Um, I think he might just be one day going to write his own account of it, possibly. We've mentioned some women who were involved with uh, Jimi Hendrix. There was a dazzling succession of them. There were an amazing number, weren't there? Um, and, uh, and what's interesting is that qu quite a lot of them took a sort of a proprietorial interest in him, either claimed that they were going to marry him or they uh, they wanted to control him or he was he, they were his best friend and he they had to keep an eye on him. That's true. And in fact, he, <clears throat> if Monica Dannemann was to be believed that he had two fiancées at the time of his death because he had also, um, there was a, a Danish uh, actress called Christ, Christin, Christin Neffer who sounded just like a very regular nice person if he'd stayed with her or if he'd answered her she kept calling him in the days before his death and he was with her that week but she had to go back to work she was making a movie she was making a movie with the, yes uh, with George Lazenby the, the the one James <laughs> Bond that everyone remembers for only being James Bond once um, but it, again you know uh, if he had stayed with her or if he had stayed at the Cumberland Hotel if he had not gone to that really pokey little place in Notting Hill which meant that when the police arrived because Notting Hill in those days was not at all chic and there were lots of you know there was a lot of um, immigrant uh, bad accommodation and he was just thought to be you know another as they put it black junkie from Notting Hill so he wasn't recognized when he was admitted to hospital at all the police the ambulance people they didn't know who he was what if he hadn't died? Can we speculate? What, I mean, would he have been able to sustain that level of creativity and influence much beyond uh, his, his, you know, brief four-year spell? 
Well, this question is often, I mean, it's the same question is asked of John Lennon and Buddy Holly, because it doesn't mean he would have, if he hadn't died, then it doesn't mean he would have lived until the present, you know. Uh, mortality might have overcome him at a middle age or something. But at the time, he was moving away from this because his his playing was very much getting much more like bebop, more like, you know, avant-garde jazz. He had jammed with Miles Davis in New York, and he would certainly have moved into a much more sort of esoteric kind of guitar jazz fusion. That There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, but again, you know, he was not a robust individual and... He might well have not lasted very much longer for some other reason, who knows, I don't know. But it was a dreadful loss to music, and it was acknowledged to be at the time, but also, to me, a great loss to the human race. Finally, you never actually met him, and you, you could have. I mean, your job at that time was more or less meeting and writing about rock and roll megastars. D do, you, do you kick yourself? I do, really. I mean, there were a lot of other people who were around at the time. I wish I'd... You know, um, and in fact, I was after his death. Um, I was asked to interview Clapton about how he felt about Jimmy's death, and Clapton was de Clapton is not an emotional person, you know, um, but he was devastated by Jimmy's death, and I, I I didn't even do that. You know, I was off to America to meet uh, Motown's latest discovery, the Jackson Five, with a little boy. You know, of what 11. became of them? Did they? <laughs> did they do? Yeah. <laughs> so that wasn't a wasted trip. Not exactly. The book is Wild Thing, Short Spellbinding Life of Jimi Hendrix by Philip Norman. It's published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson at £20. Philip, the, the book is wonderful. It's, uh, it's literate and wonderfully readable, beautifully researched and uh, an absolute joy. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Books Podcast, presented by Tim Hay. Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com <laughs>